0: Now, what I'd like to do um, is give you a short what um, my old dear friend, who many of you hopefully know or knew of, John O'Donohue, did any of you know John? Um, John was a dear, wonderful person, and uh, he passed away two years ago now, and, um, uh, but John used to call short um, discourses on something a blast So I'll give you a short blast um, here, Um, and when Jack and I do the conferences around the country, what we do is we do short blasts, basically, and then dialogue with the audience, and we'll be back up doing that in San Francisco uh, the first weekend of October. Um, The blast I'd like to give you now, um, I'm torn about it, because part what I'd like to do, actually, but you need to tell me what you want to do, is I'd like to hear from you. and, okay, and I assume from the laughter that everyone wants yes. that, too? Okay. Because if I had my way, I'd have the microphone going around all of you, and I'd just sit back and yeah, soak it in. Hear You've heard each other before, she says. But I haven't heard you. <laughs> it might be amusing to ask all the therapists in the audience to
1: raise their hands. You, you would like me to
0: ask if there are, ther- are there any therapists in the audience? Yeah. Not that many. Look, take a look. Wow. 95% of Jack said he was once at a conference of teachers. Yeah. 95% of the people in the room were therapists. Were therapists, I see. But how many people are therapists? That's not, actually it's very few. Not too much. Okay. Usually and versions are in inverse relationship. I see, okay. <laughs> that's funny. All right. So, um, so let me talk to you a bit about um, the Wheel of Awareness Practice. Let me talk to you about um, this whole thing that Jack introduced uh, that I'm a part of called Interpersonal Neurobiology. And, um, you know, there's so many ways. Yes, you have? Well, you, you should get your way a little bit too, so. Well, I should, but really this is for you, not for me. So uh, it, it's not so much my way as, you know. I, I would love to do this like over a five-day period so I could we could have time to hang out and I could just hear from all of you. So what I'll do is, you know, and maybe it'll, it will come to pass. Thanks for taking care of me. I appreciate it. Um, you know, what, what I'm going to do is give you a, a short blast on this whole thing. Um, the fun thing about being in a center like this, like at Spirit Rock, where the focus is on uh, inner knowledge, inner knowing, is I'm going to say some things to you that may um, seem kind of... Um, Out there but the benefit of having um, written now five books and edited 15 professional textbooks is you know I can say if you feel it's too out there please read the textbooks um, because you'll see all the science there so I feel a little bit more secure about uh, about actually going to kind of the the take-home messages rather than doing all the build-up in the old days when I hadn't really published anything I always felt really really nervous Um, because, you know, I said, well, what's backing this up now? We have literally tens of thousands of scientific articles backing up what I'm about to say to you. Uh, So I feel very um, uh, on solid ground about that. So let's start with the basics. Interpersonal neurobiology is the field I come from. I am trained as a physician. I am trained in pediatrics and psychiatry and child psychiatry, and I have a research background in what's called attachment research. So I've trained with Mary Main at Berkeley and um, other researchers at UCLA and have studied the brain and memory and narrative and all sorts of stuff. So that's the scientific place I come from. My work as a psychotherapist. Um, But in my own training as a psychotherapist, um, what became very uh, frustrating for me was when I I, um, got my board certifications in psychiatry, I felt like I knew nothing. And I, I, was really confused because here I achieved what you could achieve in this thing of board certification or whatever, um, and yet, if you asked me what the mind was, I wouldn't have known what to have said. And um, certainly, mental health—forget it. You know. So here are the here are the findings I want to tell you, and I'm going to sort of weave this as a story, but. As of today, I've interviewed 88,700 mental health professionals directly. Yeah, 88,000. I count them. 88,700 <laughs> mental health And I asked them, how many of you have ever had even one lecture on what the mind is? And this is in the fields of psychiatry, psychology, social work, nursing, occupational therapy, educational therapy, dance therapy, movement therapy, music therapy, you name it. On five continents. Now, what's the number? Zero. The number is 2 to 5% ever say yes. 95%, and me at zero, 95% of mental health professionals have never had even one lecture on what the mind is. You ask the same thing how many of them have ever had a lecture, even one lecture on what mental health is? Same percentage, 2 to 5% say yes. So in my field, this inkling that I hadn't learned anything was validated. In fact, the whole field of mental health is kind of out of its mind, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so in the last month, literally last month, I've lectured at nine different places um, where you know we, we were wrestling with the issue of, well, I was wrestling with it up on the stage. But anyway, I said there's a wrestling going on of the fact that we in mental health actually don't know anything about the mental, and we don't know anything about the health part. And we say, and in fact, there was a journal called The American, Scientific American Mind, which came out, the cover story was, are you mentally healthy? And I thought, finally, someone to really join with, because it's very lonely thinking this way. And anyone read that journal? You remember what it said? If you don't meet criteria for a DSM diagnosis, you're mentally healthy. <laughs> un- <laughs> un- unbelievable. This was two months ago, or a month ago, right? It was just, ah. Uh, uh, so. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, DSM Christ. Sorry, that's, that's a little jargon. Thank you. So the diagnostic, that's the D, stati- and statistical, that's the S, manual of, of mental disorders is the Bible for psychiatrists. In fact, the whole field of mental health, you don't get paid unless you give a code from that little Bible. So the bottom line is you, you're taught that if you can get rid of someone's criteria, then somehow they're healthy. It's, it's really crazy. I mean, you gotta wonder who the crazy ones are, right? Anyway, so being a mental health practitioner, I've been running around saying, let's stop the madness. This is really crazy. So in the field that I work in, interpersonal neurobiology, here's basically what happened. This is like really encapsulated. I get boarded in, um, in these things, and I feel like I'm a fake. I get trained by NI, National Institute of Mental Health in uh, becoming a researcher in attachment, and yet the whole field of psychiatry kind of pooh poos the idea that the experiences you have can shape you in some significant way. It was kind of a swing of the pendulum, right? Yeah, understandably, because we actually had lived out a really bad period in the field, for example, in my field, child psychiatry, where we said that mothers, um, Acting like refrigerators could cause kids to be autistic. And parents giving double binds could give people schizophrenia. All that was false. It caused unbelievable pain in the parents. So there was a pendulum swing that said, you cannot ever look to parents as being the cause of anything bad. So here I was in uh, 1988 applying for a research grant to study attachment. My psychiatry professor said I was out of my mind. I actually met with a professor of psychology who tried to talk me out of it. Were any of you at the networker meeting recently? Anyway, this guy, Jerry Kagan, had tried to talk me out of um, doing uh, attachment research. But anyway, it's a long, long story. But the bottom line is, so I was a training director in in psychiatry, in child psychiatry at UCLA. And I was running the scientific group where it was the beginning of the decade of the brain. And here was the one question we were going to ask. What's the connection between the mind and the brain? That's the only, connect, only question, one question. And which part of that question do we start with first, do you think? The brain. the brain. The brain's pretty easy. What's the brain? It's an, it's an organ up here. It's got a bunch of stuff that does a bunch of stuff, right? No. It's a, that's my favorite thing. When I used to teach teenagers on Sunday mornings, this one teenager, I said, how was your week? He goes, well, I did the stuff with the stuff. I did the thing with the stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's an organ with a cells, long, long cells called... Neurons, and if I'm an average neuron, how many synaptic connections do I make to other neurons? 10,000, one neuron, 10,000. How many neurons are in the brain? 100 billion, who's good at math? 100 billion times 10,000 is a lot, right, a lot. So it's, a, it's trillions of connections, and there are supportive cells called glia, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes. Anyway, there's trillions of those, so it's super complex, but it's systems, so you can understand it from a systems point of view. Okay, that's no big deal, fine. That's the brain. Now, the mind. These were anthropologists. These were linguistics people. These were people from the fields of sociology, psychology, neuroscience, genetics, you know, also my field, psychiatry. Nobody had a definition of the mind, and nobody could actually have an agreement of even a description of the mind. So the group was going to fall apart. So I go and take myself for a walk in between the weekly groups we were having, and I said, look, there's got to be some thing you can say to 40 reasonable people. I had invited them all in this group so they could actually speak with each other. So the following is a definition of the mind I gave in 1992 that has been a working definition of the mind for this field that emerged from that called interpersonal neurobiology, and it's framed everything we do. And here's the definition. The mind, a core aspect of the mind, a feature of the mind, however you want to say it, a working definition of one aspect of the mind is an embodied and relational process, meaning it's not just in the brain, it's throughout the whole body. Embodied and relational process means it's not just in your body, it actually is in something happening between you and other entities, okay? In a, which gets people very nervous, of course. I thought I owned my mind, <laughs> you know, oh. <laughs> This is why you don't see me on Oprah or something like that, you know, because listen, this isn't like the fast fix. We're all interconnected, you know what I mean? So, okay, so the mind is this embodied and relational process. So it's a process, it's a verb, not a noun, which also freaks people out. Like, where's my mind? I want my mind, you know, it's a process. It's an emergent property, okay? That's a phrase from science. And that gets people very nervous, an emergent property. Yeah, well, when you think in systems terms, Those are the kind of things you talk about. It's a property that emerges from bodily and relational things going on, okay? And what does it do? It's an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. The weirdest thing ever happened in this group in 1992. 100% of these academics, 100%, said this was an absolutely acceptable place for us to begin our discussion. And the group went on for four and a half years. Yeah. I should have ended my career then. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only time you get anyone to agree on anything like that, right? So anyway, the point is, if you're going to regulate energy and information flow, if that's what you're doing and you're a mind, how do you regulate something? Anybody drive a car here tonight? How'd you regulate your car? So you have to make it go. What else do you have? And you have to make it stop. What else do you have? Steering. View. Steering view. you got to change its direction. So you have to modify the thing, right? If it's moving through time, you want to modify it. Now, what if we blindfolded you? No go. No go, right. So you also have to see what's happening. You have to monitor what's happening. So regulation always is composed of monitoring and modifying. So when you use this definition as a teacher, as a parent, as a human being on the planet, as a poet, um, John and I were working on a book on poetry and the brain, um, as a therapist for sure, you have the opportunity actually to say not only what the mind is, but how to strengthen the mind. You can teach people and yourself how to monitor with more stability and clarity. You can teach people how to modify energy and information flow with more specificity. And in a way, you're going to see how to my- modify it Toward health, which we'll define in just a moment. So, you get this regulation word is hugely impactful on what you can actually do from a practical point of view. Right? Okay, so you're regulating energy information flow. What in the world is energy? What's this dude saying about energy? You know, so I once gave this definition to someone who will remain nameless, but I said this to him and he goes, oh, you're a new age Californian. So I said, what? Because I've never been called, I've been called a Californian before, but never new age. I'm like the first thing from new age you can get. I said, what do you mean? He goes, oh, that energy thing. So I said, that energy thing? He said, yeah. I said, I think physicists use the concept of energy. And I looked at the light, I said, I said, you know, man, if I turn this energy off, you're going to really be new age. So um, he didn't invite me to participate in the thing (laughs) he was doing. But uh, anyway, that's OK. So (laughs) new age. So physicists have a hard time defining energy when you really hang with them. And I was able to do this for a week. We had a we had a meeting with physicists. Think about this. A week long time in Tuscany with physicists talking about science and spirituality. Someone's got to do it, right? <laughs> so I'm hanging around with all these physicists. So I said over wine, of course. You know, what is energy? And they go, we don't know. <laughs> for the life of us, we don't know what it is, but it's the capacity to do stuff. That's the closest they can come to, it, which is fine. Okay, so you know that. So if I came up here and said, Jack, thank you for inviting me to come here. It's so interesting, you know. You can tell when someone has different amounts of energy. You know what it is. Now, what's information? What's information? Well, if I say to you, Golden Gate Bridge, how many of you just saw the Golden Gate Bridge in your mind's eye? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, how many of you speak Greek? Okay, don't say anything then. (laughs) Anybody else speak Greek? Okay, watch this. You watch, watch, watch this. I hope I say it well. All right glycanara right <laughs> glycanara right so we got something going here yeah, yeah, yeah. right anybody got anything going no so that energy what's that the golden gate bridge you're you're stuck on that <laughs> that's good you want the golden gate golden gate bridge i'll give it back to you okay so it's just greek to you right so now <clears throat> here here's the thing here's the thing Golden Gate Bridge is just my vocal cords shaking air molecules and the movement of air molecules takes energy, right? Patterns of air molecules are moving. So Golden Gate Bridge is actually air molecules moving. That's it. Canara is just air molecules moving. So it's, they're both energy, okay? Just to get the distinction here. The swirl of energy that is the pattern of golden gate bridge has meaning for you and it has meaning for me we have a shared informational system of called english right and i mean if you want to get the brain in here that's it actually becomes less interesting that way but if you get the brain in here you say okay your tympanic membrane your eardrum moves at a certain frequency and that's again energy flow being transduced from uh, air molecules moving to membrane moving to basically ultimately neurons firing off at a certain frequency, it goes into your brain, it's processed in the, in, the, in the sound centers, and then goes very near there are the language centers. And when you know English, you know Golden Gate Bridge is a symbol for something other than the neural firing pattern, right? So you then connect it to your visual centers. How many people could see the Golden Gate Bridge? Okay, so then it goes to the visual centers in the back of your brain, okay, fine. The brain is an associational organ, and it's also a, a pattern matcher. So it matches patterns you've learned, with the present speaking, Golden Gate Bridge, fine. That's all really interesting, but the point is that it. This is all energy flow, and once it has shared meaning, once that energy flow is symbolizing something other than itself, we call it information. Right? Glee Kanara has no information for you. It has for the two of us. Maybe not the same. <laughs> <laughs> so Glee Kanara for me, just to cut to the chase, is you know I'm. Um, I dropped out of school, as Jack said, I go back, I decide to study in Europe, so I'm studying in Europe, and I go for a little trip through Europe, and I start hanging around with some people, and we, we decide we're gonna go have a nudist colony on a beach where there's fresh water on Crete, in these caves, and that's called Glicanara. And um, so I'm sitting on this rock, and when I think of Glicanara, what I think of is we're all nude, of course, we're all in our young 20s, and we men and women living together, and there's this conscientious objector from germany we're discussing the moral uh, issues about not joining the army and all that kind of stuff and these two beautiful young maidens from germany come swimming up they lift themselves up on our rock and they say joe who is this u.s marine living with us he's dying and you must save him so i stand up this young 20 year old guy i look down at these beautiful women who are now swimming to lead me to joe i dive in and i'm swimming after them i'm thinking this is the best house call I will ever make in my life. And it, it has been so far. So Joe was just dehydrated, I could revive him and reap the benefits of the medical hero. She says, you're married, watch out, she says over here. Anyway, she knows the story. I tried to take her there the other day, but she didn't want to go. Anyway, Kanara. Uh, so now Kanara means something for you and I can give you the directions after we're done. So we have all these associations. that's information, right? Before it was Greek for you now, it has a little information. So that's the point that energy swirls that have shared meaning that are symbolic for something other than themselves. After all, Golden Gate Bridge, that phrase, has nothing to do with that structure over the bay. right? It's just word, It's just sound. Right Now. I don't want to scare you, and this is the part where it gets nervous, because, listen, I used to think like this when I was in high school. It didn't make me friends, so I'm always nervous about, like, getting alienated again. I really am, so I'm serious. But but just to say it like it is, everything in reality is energy, okay? This beautiful bell here, that sound is energy, but guess what? This thing is energy that's very, very dense. Einstein taught us that E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. So we know that, and we know it's all been proven, so the point is everything in the planet is energy. Sometimes energy is so dense that it's called matter, okay? The brain is composed of matter. And when matter is larger than an atom, it applies to what's called Newtonian rules. So what's gonna happen when I let this thing go? Right, watch again. What's gonna happen when I let it go? Right, it drops. You know it's gonna drop because you know what large clumps of matter do. But what we know from science is that when things get smaller than the size of an atom, like an electron or a photon, Newtonian principles don't apply this is just straight from science so just not to freak you out but the kinds of rules that do apply are called quantum mechanics rules okay and basically the three big things just for us to discuss here is that quantum theory reveals and this has also been shown there's lots of controversy as there is with anything you can say up in a science setting and someone will say no it's down and the other person will say no it's sideways or whatever you can never say anything without there being controversy but there is lots of controversy in quantum like anything else so here are the three things that's relevant to a discussion of what we do with the wheel of awareness practice that if you're talking about something smaller than the size of an atom quantum rules apply and quantum has to do with probabilities not certainty that's number 1 number 2 is it has everything to do with the fact, and this is really bizarre, that awareness changes the thing you're aware of. So when you have a photon shot through a slit, it goes actually in two places at once. But when you're aware of that photon, the awareness consolidates its reality into one place, and people freak out about that. Yeah, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. But here's the, here's the thing just for us to say, that here is a theory of physics which embeds awareness straight in it. It doesn't make awareness peripheral. So that's the second thing. The third thing is something called non-locality. And the best way to think about non-locality is like the ripple effect of a, a pebble falling into a pond. Right? If, if you drop a pebble into a pond, what happens? The ripple goes everywhere, right? So if you happen to be a frog, right, and you are on your little lily pad, you know, and your lily pad moves up and down, you go, whoa, I'm in my ripple. You don't realize that somewhere else, some other frog is rippling, you know, at the same time. That's the way energy works. It's like ripples on a field of interconnectedness. So, these are just quantum realities, all right? No one likes to think about this. All you wanna do is just go home and watch TV. (laughs) (laughs) On the Newtonian level, (laughs) but you wouldn't be here if you wanted to think a little bit about this, so I'm sorry if I'm ruining your day. (laughs) So here's the deal, here's the deal. Um, (laughs) Interpersonal neurobiology um, basically asks the question, what is health? And how do we understand the mind as a quantum process through which awareness changes the nature of our experience of reality. Okay? That, that's the ultimate thing we try to wrestle with. So there's a whole, whole bunch to say about it, but I just want to give you the take home message, which is this. Through a number of different avenues of scientific discourse, what we do is we look at any scientific discipline and try to find the universal principles that emerge from the separate explorations of truth. In the beginning, we grounded everything we did in science and now that the field has these 15 textbooks that I've edited and we have 15 more coming through, um, we're expanding out and now we're actually embracing the arts, music, we're embracing contemplative practices and in lots of ways, you could expand it to just saying scientific disciplines to any disciplined study of human reality. That's what we're interested. And consilience is a word that means finding the universal principles that arise from independent efforts to understand about the nature of truth. So that's what we do. We're not a branch of neurobiology. We're not a branch of anything. We're kind of our own little thing where you know, we, we um, embrace ways of knowing. And in that sense, we're, I guess we're kind of unusual because we're not a part of a university, we're not a part of a this or a that, we're just trying to bring everybody in so that they can talk with each other using a common language. So one of the languages we're really interested in studying is the language of health. So we asked the question, if we've defined the mind, which we've done in the working definition, we say, well, what's a healthy mind? And then you find this bizarre lack of a definition of health, not only in the field of mental health, but even the field of positive psychology, amazingly. They describe positive things, but they actually don't define a healthy mind. It's kind of shocking. Um, There's a lot of shocking things in the world, but that's one of them. Um, So anyway, so so here's how we define health. And I'm going to do it by giving you a very short story but maybe some of you heard it before. Were any of you here when I was here with Diana Winston, and we did the um, talk on parenting? No. Okay. Good. Good. Wow. Okay. So a whole new group. I, I scared everybody off. No one said, "No, I'm not going to come back and hear that guy," <laughs> and they're never going to invite me back to Spirit Rock after this quantum talk. He said, "You scared everybody." So could you turn that lamp on? Could I turn it off? Sure. Thanks. Oh, oh my God. Oh, I wish you would have asked before. I'm oh, sorry. I didn't want to interrupt you. Oh no, interrupt anytime. Don't forget, I want to hear you. Anyway, so please, say, say more about that. <laughs> okay, is that okay if that's off? Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, sorry, I don't, I don't even know why it was on. Yeah. Okay. I Oh, do you need it on for me? Oh, no, no. You'll manage, okay. So, so here's, the, uh, here's the idea. Uh, well, okay, here's the story. And it's a, uh, I could tell this in a long, long period of time, but because of our time, I'm going to say it in a short way. Just picture this. I'm in, um, I'm a child psychiatrist, and, I get, I, and this patient comes to me, is sent to me, who stops speaking in school. She's seven years old. Obviously, the details are changed to protect their uh, identities. This is the first chapter of the Mindsight book. Um, it, it, she comes, she stops t- talking in school. So I start being with her, playing with her in silence and everything like that, and a ball rolls behind the couch, and she sees this video player, and she's all animated. So I said, do you have a video you wanna show me? And she kind of nods her head. So the next week, she brings in a video. And I turn on the thing, the machine. We put the video in. And on the screen is this exquisite dance of love between a five-year-old, Leanne, two years earlier, and her mom. And there's just unbelievable attunement, and they're connecting with each other and giggling and laughing. It's the dad who's the cameraman's birthday, and they're blowing kisses to him. It just... You, You couldn't believe it, but the woman who is Barbara, who is Leanne's mother, is sitting in the waiting room, is not the same person. And it turns out that a year before Leanne was brought to me, just before she stopped speaking, her mom unfortunately went to get some milk for the kids, didn't put her seatbelt on, was hit straight on by a drunk driver, and the steering wheel crushed the part of her brain just above her eyes. She was rushed to the hospital, she was in a coma, she had brain surgery, she had plastic surgery, and she was in rehab for a while. And then when she came home, Leanne stopped speaking. And the mom had become profoundly different. So I took the scans that Barbara, the mom, gave to me from her neurosurgeon. And I went to the library and I looked up what this area of the brain, just if you can imagine the sad and terrible to think about, but important for our learning, um, this arc of the steering wheel, if you can imagine that in your brain. And if you put your thumb in the middle like this, just try this this is a, a useful model of the brain, like this. This would be the hand model of the brain. The brain's a little bit bigger than your fist, but not that much bigger. And it's in the head like that. And this is the part of the brain right there, this middle part where your fingernails are. We're going to review these parts of the brain very briefly. All right, this is, I call it the middle part of the prefrontal, which is the frontmost front part of the cortex, the outer bark of the brain. There were nine functions that uh, were essential um, uh, to have an intact middle prefrontal cortex. To create these nine functions. I'm going to list them for you. If you're taking notes, you can write them. If you're not taking notes, these are all in the Mindsight book. Or if you have the Mindful Brain book or this new book, the Mindful Therapist book. This, these nine functions have been an unbelievable window into stuff that blows my mind even to this day, even though this was years ago. First of all, this part of the brain, this middle prefrontal area, allows the two branches of the nervous system that extend deeply into the body, which are like a brake and an accelerator, literally, the parasympathetic and sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, you don't have to worry about that, the brake and the accelerator, it balances them. So bodily regulation, number one. Number two, you know when you go up to someone and you feel tuned into them? This part of the brain allows you to have attunement with another person. These two things, actually all the things I'm about to mention, Barber lost after this damage. Attunement requires an intact middle prefrontal area. Number three, something in the scientific literature that's called emotional balance. Allowing yourself to have affective states, these states of feelings we get, aroused enough so life has vitality and meaning, but not too aroused so it becomes chaotic or too depleted where it becomes rigid. And we're going to return to that finding of chaos and rigidity being the extreme boundaries beyond a more harmonious flow. And that's called emotional balance. This part is essential for that. Number three. Number four is something I call response flexibility, which is basically the capacity to pause before you act. It's a space between impulse and action. Response flexibility. That's number four. Number five is the capacity to <clears throat> modulate fear, to down-regulate fear. So if you've been bitten by a dog and you're frightened of dogs, the way you unlearn the fear is you grow inhibitory fibers from this middle prefrontal region down to the fear-inducing amygdala, which is in your thumb area. That's the limbic area, amygdala, right there. And see how it sits on top of that. That's number five. Number six amazingly, is something we can simply call insight, which is the capacity in scientific terms to have mental time travel. You sit in the present, you anticipate and can plan for the future, and you can project backwards to the past. Connecting the past, present, and future is mental time travel. That's what we're gonna just call insight. And Barbara also lost that along with all these other things. Number seven is empathy. Being able to put yourself in the mental position of someone else. So compassion might be more akin to attunement. Empathy is this capacity to see from another person's point of view. Insight, this mental time travel and empathy, at a very minimum are what we call mind-sight. Sensing your own internal mental world and sensing the internal mental world of someone else. That's number seven. Number eight is morality. Thinking about the larger social good, and not only imagining what's larger for the, what's good for the larger social whole, but enacting it even when you're alone. That's number eight. And number nine is intuition. Accessing the wisdom of the body. We have what are called parallel distributive pr- processors, or PDP processors, or processors around the heart and the intestine, that literally are processing information all the time of a non rational but very important wise source. So, when Jack and I first met and he's talking about the wise heart, I'm saying, no kidding. You know, because there are these processors that come up through a part of the spinal cord, lamina one, they come way up and they reach the brain stem, which is deep here. So, you're monitoring for fight, flight, freeze reactions you can have. You regulate states of arousal with the brainstem here. You go up to a part just below the limbic area, it's called the hypothalamus. You regulate endocrine control. But then you come up to a part that you probably heard about in the news called the insula. And the insula is part of our middle prefrontal area where you have a map of the interior of the body. Amazingly, the map of the outside world is in the back of the cortex, but the map of the inner world is actually in this middle prefrontal area. It's unbelievable. Fascinating. Anyway, okay, that's number nine is intuition. Now, unfortunately Barbara had lost all these things and the family was terribly upset, obviously grieving, but they didn't know what to grieve because she looked the same but was profoundly different. So when I had Barbara alone in my office, there's actually another therapist there at, the, at that moment, so I, I'm so glad she was, but anyway. So I had Barbara there with her husband and this other therapist, and I said, what is life like for you since the accident? And she looks at me and she says, well, I guess if I had to put a word to it, I guess I would say I've lost my soul. And you know, This was exactly what Leanne could not articulate with words, that the essence of her mom was gone. And amazing, it even turns out that it's another area of the brain that allows you to know your self-traits. It's different from mental time travel. And that area of the brain was intact in Barbara, so she knew that something was different, but it just didn't matter. Helping this family required that I understand the importance of the brain in relationships. But even more than that, we could say, what was going on in this very small region of the brain that could make it have such an important job to bring together everything from regulating the body to moral behavior, right? So take a look at your hand model. Everyone put your hand together like this. Lift your hand up. You didn't know you were gonna get a neuroanatomy lesson, but here it is. Put it back down. What do you notice is unique about the physical location of the middle prefrontal cortex, which is basically your middle two fingernails? Lift it up and put it back down. I can't do it. This finger won't come down. That finger won't come down. No, no. Well, don't do that near me. Try, the, try your other hand. There you go. Okay, what do you notice is unique about it? It covers the thumb and it's connected to the brainstem and it's actually a part of the cortex. In fact, it brings in signals from the body through the insula and it's taking in signals from other people called social signals. The social, the somatic, the bodily, the brainstem, the limbic, and the cortical are different areas, differentiated, specialized, unique areas that are all brought together as a functional whole. So when I was faced with this with the family. I started to ask the question, this is an area that's linking differentiated parts. What do we call that in plain English? Integration. And then I asked myself the question, is integration the heart of health? After all, you're not allowing the kids to be differentiated and then for Barbara to link to them. So relationships are based on the sharing of energy and information flow and they couldn't integrate that her brain couldn't integrate all these systems so I started looking deeply into the mathematics of integration and couldn't find anything with the word integration until I dropped the word and took the basic idea of linking differentiated parts and then I found it in a branch of mathematics called complexity theory it's a branch part of probability work And complexity theory tells us that when a system is open and capable of chaotic behavior, which certainly we as people are, and a brain certainly is, and families are, you can enable the parts of the system to become differentiated, and then when they become linked, you get the most flexible and adaptive, energized flow of that system. And I literally fell off my chair, it was about 3 or 4 in the morning, I gave out a holler that I was worried I was going to wake up my kids. And I thought, this is the best definition of mental health I had ever read. I actually should have said it's the only definition of mental health I ever read. But I didn't know enough then. But I thought this was amazing. What if we replaced the idea of health with the word integration and we could understand things like emotional health. Actually, emotion itself is a form of integration. Now, when you read further in complexity theory, you find that when systems are integrated, they are harmonious. It's if we had a choir singing up here, which I think we, did we do that? Oh, you weren't here. Anyway, I think we may have done it last time. If you imagine a choir singing Amazing Grace, you allow the singers to be differentiated and they're linked and you feel the harmony, which is the subjective experience of integration. But when you don't allow the choir to allow themselves to be differentiated, for example, if they all sing the same way, same time, same note, ah, rigid. If you have them close their ears and they can't hear each other, chaos. It turns out the complexity theory tells you when a system is not integrated, it moves either to rigidity, chaos, or some shimmering of both. So then I whip out that DSM book, that Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, and suddenly every single symptom of every single syndrome can be seen as an example of chaos, rigidity, or both, and I go, holy moly. Perhaps that book, though it never mentions integration, is actually a description of impaired states of integration. So when you go looking for disorders like schizophrenia, depression, autism, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, impaired integration, impaired integration, impaired integration, every single time, you find it in the brain. Take the example of kids who have been abused and neglected. Marty Teicher's publication in 2002, long after we were talking about this, but anyway, he didn't know our work. He comes out with a Scientific American article. He shows if you're abused and neglected, the fibers in your brain that are either not growing or destroyed are the integrative fibers. So then I'm a parent, and I go, well, this is really weird. Look at this thing, and how many of you are parents in the room? Okay, well let's be honest, think about that list of nine. How many of you have ever flipped your lid? <laughs> Where you temporarily are out of your mind, your integrated mind, right? And you have to come back to integration, right? So in the parenting from the inside out work, we talk about temporary states and then suddenly we're teaching parents about the brain and I thought it was just important for them to know the truth. But it turns out that when you teach parents about the brain, we teach anybody about the brain, actually kids or patients or whoever, they develop more self-compassion. It's unbelievable. We had parents in the, the study area we were doing was this school we were working yeah. in. We would do these workshops. Parents would come to us and go, you know something? Ever since my kid was uh, really young, I would beat myself up whenever i flipped flip my lid. I thought I was crazy, but I couldn't tell anyone because I thought they'd take my kid away or they'd put me in a prison or a hospital or something. But after your talk last night, I understand it's my brain and it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. And that shift from self-blame to self-empowerment made all the difference. She could go back to her child and make a repair, and then suddenly the whole attachment relationship could get better. Now watch this, because I'm watching the time, so and I know we have to stop in five minutes, but let me, let me just say this. Watch this unbelievable thing, all right? I write a book with my co-author Mary Hartzell on parenting. So we say, hey, the mo- one of the most important principles besides being joyful and being making sense of your life and all that stuff, because that's what the research shows from it, Attachment, is the best predictor of how your children do is how your own self-understanding. It's not what happened to you, it's actually how you make sense of what happened to you. So that's what that book is all about, the developing mind, science of that, parenting from the inside out, the application of that. Okay. So we write in, one of the most important principles is just to be, awake and intentional in your parenting and be conscientious so what word would you use we, we actually use the word being mindful so we write the word mindful and we do these workshops after the book is published they say when are you going to teach us to meditate and we say what are you talking about right because i actually never really paid any attention to meditation or anything like that so they say well you your principle is meditation i said what do you mean And they go look right there meditation i said that word is mindfulness they say, well, mindfulness meditation. I said, well, what's that? I had never heard of it, actually. Because I was already doing something so politically incorrect to say that what parents did mattered and shaped the brain of the child that I was going to stick straight with science. I didn't want any of this weird, gooey meditation stuff. So by accident, or if, I don't know, life has accidents, I'm put on a panel soon after that with John Kabat-Zinn. Now, I was unfamiliar with his work. So I started reading his work, and I... I'm on this panel. I don't know if any of you were there, but you can actually hear this tape. It's hilarious. And it's the first time I met John. And so I'm up on this thing. I said, look, I don't know anything about what I'm talking about. But, you know, in my field, attachment research shows that in those days it was seven, now it's eight. Eight of this list of nine middle prefrontal functions, what we've proven without knowing anything about the brain are outcomes of secure attachment between a parent and a child. Right." This is the integrative function of the brain that comes from interpersonal attunement. But I've read your books, I said, on your studies. It looks like all nine of these are outcomes of mindfulness meditation, but I don't even know what that is, so I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And he goes, you can relax. In fact, that list you've just described is what we've proven is an outcome of mindfulness training. So then I said to him, I said, you know something, I need to experience he said, You need to experience it. I said, Yeah. So he sends me to IMS, I do this retreat, and he was actually there and all this stuff. And so the experience for me of mindfulness was a form of internal attunement where my observing self could become open, curious, accepting, and loving to my experiencing self. Just like a parent, I remember the word coal, curious, open, accepting, loving. A parent has a cold state with respect to their child. That's interpersonal attunement. Internal attunement is having curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love to your own experiencing. Internal attunement probably produces the growth of these integrative fibers, just like we believe interpersonal attunement, the sharing of energy and information flow that's integrative, interpersonally produces the same in kids. That's what we think. These areas grow. We believe in kids. So then I'm asked to give this lecture at at Harvard. You know, I go back there after I dropped out and all that stuff, but this is a different time I went back. And they asked me to do this opening keynote presentation. And so I just had come from being on the panel with John, and I went from Washington, D.C., where we did that, up to Boston. So I said, I don't know what I'm talking about, but, you know, I, I have a feeling that mindfulness is a form of internal attunement that's integrative, produces growth of these fibers. But I don't know. This guy comes up to me. He says, you know, your work got me my career. I said, what are you talking about? I said, oh, developing mind shaped my career. That's why I have this title. He's the head of social neuroscience. So I said, well, what? He goes, I got to tell you something. We just completed a study. This is a study by Sarah Latz that shows that mindfulness meditators have a growth in exactly the areas you've predicted. And I went, oh my god. And then later on, an independent study at UCLA showed the same thing. So these middle prefrontal areas actually get thicker with mindfulness practice. Then I'm lecturing in, I'm lecturing in uh, Alaska and a, a leader of the Inuit tribes comes up to me. She goes, do you know what that list of nine things is? I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, for 5,000 years, our people have passed through the oral tradition, essentially that list on how to live a wise and kind life. And then I was teaching recently at another conference and people from the Navajo tribe came and told me the same thing. You know, so all I want to suggest to you is this. First of all, how many of you would like that list in your life, right? (laughs) So what I want to suggest is that list emerges literally from integration, integration from the inside out. And so what we have here then is an opportunity to take a definition of the mind and say not only how do you regulate the mind, but how do you monitor energy and information flow to detect when there's chaos and rigidity, and then when you figure out there's chaos and rigidity, how do you then figure out the domain of integration? And this is, these are basically all the chapters of the Mindsight book, or domain after domain of dom- domain, where you find when there's chaos or rigidity in a certain aspect of your life, like left and right hemisphere, up and down, even chaos or rigidity within awareness, you go through it systematically so that once you detect chaos or rigidity, you know there's impairment to integration. Integration requires the linkage of differentiated parts you can actually focus attention, which is basically the streaming of energy and information flow, in a certain way that can differentiate circuits that you'll see when you meet Stuart. A 92-year-old can do this work and change his brain so much that his wife calls me up and says, did you give my husband a brain transplant? (laughs) Because you can actually focus energy and information flow to transform the structure of the brain. And once you have the integration paradigm in in your mind, chaos and rigidity leads you on the path to understanding where there's a blockage of differentiation. You can actually focus attention just like a a, a laser beam, develop those areas that are not differentiated, then you promote the linkage among them and bam, you see changes that you cannot believe. So another reason I'm going around with besides Jack talking about mindfulness as a form of integrative practice You can use it in schools. It's not a religion. It's a brain fitness training that harnesses the power of the mind to change the structure of the brain toward integration, all right? These integrative circuits are the regulatory circuits of the brain. This is the key. They're the same as the social circuits of the brain, and mindfulness is a way of changing your relationship with yourself. This is the idea. So the great news is we're at this incredible moment When we look at this consilient view view of science, when you think about the Wheel of Awareness practice we did, basically what that's doing is it's differentiating different sensory streams, number one. It's differentiating the hub from the rim, number two. And then if you notice the stealth compassion that gets in there with the eighth sense, what does it do? It reminds everyone, especially if you're doing this in schools, that we are all interconnected, and what is the ultimate outcome of honoring differences and promoting linkage. What is it? World peace, peace, kindness, and compassion. So the promise here is to finally have a scientific view, not just of health for an individual, or for a couple, or for a family, but health for our planet. That's the promise of us all working together, one person, one relationship at a time, to make this a kinder world for all of us to live in now and for generations ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.